This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, quick announcements before we uh, before we begin. Next week, we will uh, not uh, be here. There is still going to be some sort of class. It's going to be a, a Kumzit singing style class. It's going to be at 630 Avenue S. 630 is the address. Avenue S is also part of the address. The time will be 8 p.m. Uh, there's going to be a speaker with uh, Kumzits, um, and it seems like uh, fun stuff. The other announcement is... is at, at, on the corner of Avenue S and E7. There's like a white uh, shul over there. Okay, a synagogue. The other announcement is uh, in Az Yashir, the Persian shul in Brooklyn, at 1301 East 18th Street, this Motesh Shabbat, this Saturday night, there is going to be a speaker. Charlie Harari is going to be speaking at 10.45 p.m. The refreshments is going to be at 10 o'clock. So from 10 to 10.45, you could just eat. You could just eat all you want for 45 minutes. Um, I don't know why refreshments are so long, but it's just probably going to be so much food. So definitely make it there, at least for the refreshments. Um, but even if you make it there, definitely stay for the speaker because uh, it is an amazing speaker, an amazing event. Though I strongly recommend whoever is able to, to go and uh, get yourself over there and be inspired and change your life and you'll be a better person and you won't recognize who you are and uh, you will be so different. Okay, wait, let's move on. Okay, so let us begin with the topic at hand. The topic at hand is a very, very important topic. Now, it is very, very, uh, you know, appropriate for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur during this time because it's a time that we want to change, we want to make ourselves better, we want to, uh, we, we want to enhance ourselves, but it's also, uh, a, you know, a topic for every day. And the topic is rationalization. It's something that we all do, unfortunately, and it's something that we, uh, you know, tend to be really, really good at it. And what we're gonna delve into is, is what is the source of that? What is the origin of that? How do we take that apart? And in fact, you, you know that when you speak to people and you realize, they keep on saying like, you know, what is something that is going to, uh, um, yeah, people always want to be great. Everybody wants to be great. Even the laziest person on world wants to be great. They have a drive to do something with their life. This is something that, that people have a drive. Human beings have a drive in, in, in general. Some people have less of a drive than others. Some people have more of a drive. But everyone has a drive to be great. And people tend to push off, you know why I can't be great? Because my mother. You know, you know why I can't be great? Because this, because this, because... They give an excuses that is outrelated to them. But we're going to be seeing today that the reason why you are not great, the real reason is really because of you. So we're going to try to break that down today. What we're going to do is we're going to take rationalization. We're going to see what the Torah says about it. We're going to see what psychology says about it and how they are both in sync and then how we're going to be able to overcome it. Okay, awesome. I'm pumped. Let's change ourselves. Let's become better. Uh, let's do awesome things. Sparty, right? Okay, so there we go. That's the spirit. I'm all for that. Okay, we're going to begin with... Uh, Rabbi Dessler. Rabbi Dessler comes and brings down it in, uh, in, in one of his Sfarim. He brings down, he says, uh, he brings down a few ideas of obstacles to repentance. Things that prevent you to go into repentance. And he brings down a pasuk in Bereshit. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, it says a, a verse like this. It says, It says in the Torah, it says, And God said, let us make man. Now, when you're reading the Torah... And in fact, Christians have a field day with this because it says, let us make man. That's plural. That means more than one God. Aha! Trinity! Bam! Source of the Torah for a Trinity for, God forbid, for anything else. So it seems over here, this is a very, very big boo-boo. Like, why? what happened over here? Why did the Torah say, in the first chapter, verse 26, numerical value of God's name, nonetheless, right? Well, maybe that has something to say with it. 
it says over there that it says, let us make man, meaning that there's, it appears that there's more than one God. The, Rashi goes on and, and uh, this is also, Nassim Tzvi Finkel brings this down as well, that what is the whole purpose of this? What, what really happened over here? God was making man, he was making humankind, but he consulted the angels. Why did he consult the angels? To teach us a lesson. What was the lesson? The lesson is that you should always consult people lesser value than you. It's a lesson in humility. Don't think you're all that. If God could go and consult the creatures that he created, the angels, so should you consult people lesser than you. If someone gives you criticism, if someone does this, even if they're less than you, still listen to them, still, still go and, and consult them. So it's a lesson of good character trait. Becoming a good person, becoming good, uh, ha- having a, a, you know, a good character trait, which the essence really is based on humility, which we'll soon see. Now I have a question. So we have here, let's put things on a scale. On one side of the scale, we have, you know, good character traits. Yeah, be a good person, humility, hum- you know, we see, we learned that from God, God was humble. On the other side of the character, of the, of the scale, we see over here, uh, I don't know, heresy? You know, like, the risk of God, of, of us thinking that there's more than one God. Now, if I were to ask you, is this a worth, a, a worth risk? So at one point you have, you know, you're taking a risk. Everything is always in life is always about risk, especially in business. In business you have risks. Usually the higher risk, the greater the reward, unless you're not so smart in business, then the higher risk, the lesser reward. But if you're smart in business, the higher the risk, the greater the reward, the lower risk, the lower reward. And this is why you see when a lot of people invest money, if you do something safe, you have a low, uh, you know, a low investment, uh, you know, a low, a, low, a low return on investment. If you have a high risk, you have a higher return on investment. That's the basic idea of it. So now when we look at this in terms of investment, so we have over here on one side that God is saying, yet here you're going to learn a lesson of humility. Here you're going to learn a lesson of having good character traits. But on the other side, you have a risk of people believing or thinking that there's more than one God. Now we know the essence of Judaism is what? There's one God. So we're putting everything at risk for good character traits? Does that make sense? Is that a fear? Is that a fear, uh, you, know, uh, you know, risk adjustment that you could think of? And the answer is yes. Now why? Why is that? The Rav Dessler goes down, he quotes Rav, Rav Dessler Tzifinkel, something so amazing that, he says like this, when, when somebody goes and thinks any thought, that thought has to be something with a prior interest to it. There's always a prior interest to your thought. You're always biased in some way. Even when you came to the class today, you're biased a little bit. You might be thinking, this is going to be an awesome class, I'm going to change my life, and then... You're awesome, and you should come every week. And then you might think, this guy screams so much, I don't know why he sweats so much, it's not, it's freezing in here. Like, you might be thinking, like, all other things. And now, by the way, everybody's gonna be looking at that. <laughs> so, uh, good kid, good catch. Okay, so, you, you go and you, and you, and you start, you know, you, you realize that you have a prior interest. And I'll give you an example. A woman is dating a man. This man has a lot of money. I'm t- a lot, a lot of money. Like, a lot of money. Like, not just, like a lot of money. Like you never have to work a day in your life. Like your work will be telling your 16 maids what to do. Uh, and your 14 servants, you know, you know what to do. You're like, you never have to work. You're talking about a guy who is like, you know, you're seriously set financially. However, this guy has, uh, let's just say he's not the greatest person as a human being. Um, he's got anger, you know, you know, character, you know, he's got, he's got other issues that he, Likes to look at all the other women, you know, this is all part of God's creation, he says. Whatever it is, excuses that he gives. He likes to expand his horizons. Um, you know, it's like the person who says, why don't he, why, you know, obviously non-Jewish. Why doesn't he wear his wedding, his wedding uh, band, his wedding ring? He says, if I wear my wedding ring, how am I going to find my soulmate? You know, this doesn't make any sense. So, you know, he's one of those guys that is always looking for his next soulmate. Um, 
And uh, this girl is still stuck by him. It, you know, it's still stuck by him. But this girl, like, like, he's so angry. He's so angry, he screams at you. And she'll say, well, that's his business side. You know, like, that's how he makes so much money because he's got that... You know, he's got that Middle Eastern, uh, whatever you're into, I don't know. Um, you know, you know, the heat. He's got that, you know, he's got that Latino in him, you know, he's got the heat going on over there. So, or, you know, let's say, you know, you go and they say like, but he's looking at, you know, all other women. What woman wants a man that's looking at all other women? She says, no, really, he's just looking to see what to buy me. He wants to know what's the newest Chanel bag and what's the best Louis Vuitton heels and I don't know anything else that you, uh, you know, would want. So she makes what? She makes excuses for him. Now imagine this scenario. Imagine one of her best friends come over to her and says, I'm dating a guy. And she tells him all the same character traits minus the money. What do you think the girl who is dating this wealthy guy with the same character traits will tell the other girl who is dating a guy with the same character traits without the money? She says, dump him. She says, why are you still with him? You're going to have a terrible life. He's angry. He's always he's like, what are you doing? And then the girl will say, but you're doing the same thing. You're, in, you're invested in the same scenario. Only one difference is that this guy has money. So what do we see over here? The difference is that if you have a reason to rationalize, you will rationalize to the high heavens. I've had many people that talk to me about their dating lives, and I don't understand why are you still with him? This guy is obviously has problems. This girl obviously has issues. Why are you still dating with him? But they make, they make rationalization. They make changes to their opinions, and they stick with it. And unfortunately, people are stuck in such bad relationships because of this problem, because of rationalization. The idea says... says um, says Rav Nassim Sifinkel and brings it down uh, Rav Dessler he says that you, you're, you're before you even think of something before you even analyze any thought you're already biased towards something you're already biased or something what is the source of your bias? your bias this is the source of your will what is the source of your will? your character traits your character traits is what forces you to what, where you want to think so if let's say somebody's very into the materialistic, that's a, that's a desire, that's a character trait. Then they're going to be very into, so their will is going to be that even if they find a guy who's very wealthy, very financially well off, they'll make all excuses for him because the will is what's driving it. The character trait is what's driving it. So now we go back and we see, what did God say over here? God said over here that the essence of, of, of what we're dealing with over here is character trait. And in fact, character trait is so important, so important that it's even worth it to have people question the idea that maybe there's more than one God. Maybe there's more than one God. Because God said, let us make man. Because it's worth it to learn a lesson of character traits. To wor- worth it to learn a lesson of humility. Now, the Midrash goes on and says like this. It says that when Moses was writing the Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu was writing the Torah, he came to this point, And God was telling him, God dictated Moshe Rabbeinu Moses what to write. He says, write this. And he said, okay, fine. He write this. And okay, okay, fine. And he wrote it. And when he got to this verse, he said, and God, God told Moses and said, and write Adam, we will, we made man, we make man together, as if God was, there's more than one God. So Moshe Rabbeinu was like, uh, excuse me God, I have a question. Um, maybe it would be a good idea not to put we, maybe we should put I. And Moses had the same question that we had. He says, what are you putting in, in the name we? Why are you making it think that there's more than one God? And then God answered something very, very significant, and it's, this is, I believe, it's such a, an amazing, uh, amazing secret. God said something like this, if somebody wants to sin, he will sin. If you think about that idea, the essence of when somebody goes and messes up, the essence of when somebody goes and decides to make a sin, it's because deep down they want to at some point. Now let me explain this way. I'm a numbers guy, so let me explain to you in the way that I understand this. The, 
you're going, you're walking down the street and a sin presents yourself. Whatever sin you want, pick it, it doesn't matter. A sin presents yourself. Now, in every person, and this is the way I, this is the way that I think, I like to break things down in numbers. There could be, if you're a good person, 90% of you does not want to sin. 10% of you kind of does, you know, it's kind of a good sin, you know, like, you kind of enjoy it. It's like 10% does, but then you say like, oh, it's bad, it's not good, it's not good, I'm going to burn Whatever it is that you're going to think, you 90% bad, 10% good. But now it depends on the person. Some people, 10%, they don't want to sin, but 90% like, oh yeah, I'm sinning. Like, if I get a chance, I am doing, I, like, I am going to do the worst of the, if I get, just get a chance. It depends where your numbers lie. Says God, if somebody wants to sin, you will sin. Which means is, the essence of the sin is not because you came in according to a test and you came to go into a temptation. Yeah, that takes a factor into it. And of course. But the real essence of sin, because deep down you really wanted to do it. If you really, really don't want to sin, you will never sin. But this is all based on the fact that we're putting, like you said, that it's worth the risk to believe that it's a lesson versus that it's helpful God. So how do we know for sure we're actually right in this scenario? Oh, very good. So, so well, that's where the Torah comes in. The Torah comes in to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And that's what we're going to get to yet. You jump the gun, you're right on target, but you'll, I think I'll answer it. If I don't answer at the end, I'll bring it up again. So, you know, the idea is that we have preconceived notions of everything. We're very opinionated beings, right? Very opinionated. One gender is a, a little bit more by like 110%, but the other, but like we're all opinionated at what, at, at, to, to some extent. We're very opinionated beings. When you're going into something, you're already opinionated. You know when people say like, you know, well the first time I saw him, I knew he was the one. I'm like, you just liked the way that his car looked in the sun. You know, like, whatever it was, you know, like, you liked it. You didn't, you, you, how do you know? How do you know that was the one? What, well, you know him? You know who he was? Maybe he was a murderer. Like, how do you know what, who he is? Like, but we're very opinionated. That's why, we, according to psychology, the, uh, the first impression makes a big impression. Why? Because we're opinionated beings. When we see something, we make an opinion and we decide right then and there. Am I going to like you? I'm going to hate you? Are going to be my enemy? Are you going to be my friend? And that's it. We move on with our, with our lives. Everything is opinionated. We're all sourced inside. Whether you're going to sin, whether you're not, it's dealt deep inside of you depending what you really want. If somebody really doesn't want to sin, guess what? They're not going to sin. They're not going to mess, mess up. If somebody really wants to never never ever to eat non-kosher they're never going to eat non-kosher because they're going to make sure of that if somebody wants to make sure that they never never ever commit adultery the word one of the worst sins they won't ever do that but if somebody's going to be like whatever we'll see you know we'll take it when it comes you know gonna go you know it's saturday night you know yeah night is still young we'll see what happens then guess what yeah then i will you know depends really what will happen there will be a chance that you can see and you could sin. This is why it's something very interesting. Some people go into class, they leave class, that was an awesome class. One reason is because of the speaker. Another reason is because what did you come in expecting? If you came expecting to be changed, to be motivated, to be completely turned your entire ideology, guess what? You'll find that in any class. Any rabbi, you'll find something. You'll attach to it and you'll be able to, to take it out. You want to go into a gym and you want to go and exercise. There's some people that go to the gym and be like, I don't even know what I did in there. You know, I got wasted like an hour. You know? Uh, it was, you, you did nothing. But some people will come in and they'll be like, I just lost a thousand pounds. Uh, you only weigh like a hundred pounds. Doesn't matter. I lost a, I can eat seven hamburgers now. I'm still going to be losing weight from that. You know, like you could change. What is it? It's your preconceived notion what you went coming in. You're coming in psyched that you're going to go and you're going to lose a thousand pounds. Guess what? You're going to have amazing workout. You're going to come, whatever it is, you're, we're all preconceived. This is what God said. It says if somebody wants to sin, they will sin. If somebody has a desire to sin, then they're going to read the Torah. They're going to see, oh, God said, let us make man. Ah! They're going to, ah, there's more than one God. 
says you're going to see that only if you want to see that. If you're looking for a sin, you will find it. Now, says Rav Dasa, says the Torah concepts are very clear. It's very clear, it's very straightforward. When do we start having questions? When we put in our biased opinions on it. When we start putting in our biased opinions, this is when we, have, we start having some questions. Now, if we're biased to other people, if we have already a preconceived notion on whether you're going to like this guy, hate this guy, like this person, hate this person, imagine what our biased opinions are about ourselves. One of the things that prevent tshuva is you have to realize you're doing something wrong. But if you have such a high self-regard for yourself, like you're never doing anything wrong because you rationalize it, how could you ever expect to do any repentance? This is why an alcoholic anonymous wouldn't recommend anybody to become an alcoholic. But uh, there is, it happened to be the alcoholic you know, anonymous has a very, very interesting uh, you know, method. I'm not saying I prove it or not, different class in itself. But one of the first things that they say is you have to, you, you, when you start off, you're like, hi, my name is this and I am an alcoholic. Now, many people ask, be like, well, psychologically, that doesn't make any sense. Move on with your life. All right, you're an alcoholic six years ago. You know, people are like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I've been clean for 7,000 days. They're like, well, how are you alive still? You're like, what's 7,000 days? You know, like, you know, you carry the three, your car, you know, like, what is that, 30 years? Like, you start thinking, like, what's going on over here? Why do you still justify yourself? You identify yourself by your problem. And the answer is because if you don't think that you have a problem, you will never change. If you don't think you have to change, if you don't think there's a problem with not dressing modestly, if you don't think there's a problem with not eating kosher, if you don't think there's a problem of not keeping Shabbat, guess what? You will never change. If you don't think there's a problem with being an arrogant person, with being an angry person, I have people tell this me all the time. I'm a, you know, I'm a very angry, you know, arrogant person. You know, like I'm like, why are you smiling when you say that? That's just like saying, like I have a cocaine addiction. You know, like why? That's not a good thing. You need to fix yourself. It's not like you know, just because you live in Brooklyn doesn't mean that you're allowed to have arrogance. It doesn't equal, you know, like once you get a certain zip code, you're like, okay, God says, okay, arrogance is okay, especially if you're driving. I'm not going to judge you. Like it doesn't work that way. The idea is is that if you don't realize you have a problem, you will never change. Now, if you rationalize your problem, guess what? You will never change because you rationalize all your problems. You don't think that you have a problem. There's a Gemara Yuma, page 86b, that says like this. It says something very interesting. It says, a sin repeated is a sin permitted. Again, let me repeat that. A sin repeated is a sin permitted. Now, when I learned this, Every time I learned it, this was, you know, a very interesting... I, I was like, okay, it makes sense. Why? Because the more that you repeat a sin, the less problematic it is for you. So think about it this way. Let's say somebody tries heroin for the first time. Again, not something I would uh, recommend. He tries heroin for the first time, and the first time they're like, oh my God, I can't believe what I just did. I, that was like really bad. But let's say they've been on it for like quite some time. It's not bad anymore because they're just used to it. That's the way that I understood the Gemara until I read this, you know, this from Rabbi Desser. And the idea is, is really what the Gemara is telling you, what the Torah is telling you, is teaching you something about the psychology of a human being. The psychology of a human being is something so fascinating. When you repeat a sin, you know why it is permitted, why all of a sudden it becomes permitted again? Because you make it permitted. You change yourself, you change your thought process, you rationalize that it's going to be, uh, that it's going to be uh, permitted. That's why the Gemara in Brachot, page 18b, says that wicked people are considered dead even in their lifetime. They're considered dead even in their lifetime. Why are wicked people considered dead even in their lifetime? There's something um, called the loose bone. The loose bone is somewhere in the back of your head, and this is the bone that when you get, go six feet under, uh, this is after you die, right? You go six feet under, and your body disintegrates. What comes back to resurrection? Resurrection, it's like your body gets rebuilt. It gets completely rebuilt. Where does it become rebuilt from? From this bone. It's an indestructible bone called the loose bone. 
Says Rav Dasar, says this loose bone is also something in the spiritual side. And that is a holy spark. When somebody does certain, to a certain level amount of sins, this spark gets deleted. It doesn't, it's not there anymore. Which means is they're considered dead. There is no way they're spiritually considered dead. They're not going to be able to go and do tshuva. They're stuck. Why are they stuck? Because they rationalize themselves into that. They put themselves, if you don't think that you're doing something wrong, you're never going to change. This is why we see Paro. Paro, we see that God hardened his heart. He made it, Paul was not able to change. He was not able to do tshuva. Why? Because it says in the Rambam, he says that he did, he did this sin, he did this evil to the Jewish people for absolutely no reason. He did this for no reason. When you do it for no reason, you start rationalizing. When you start rationalizing, you come to, you come to, 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 a, to a point where you're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong, you never change. But how we we rationalize because we want to do it. Now that we want to do it, now we have a reason that it's okay. Now that it's okay, we'll never do tshuva. But where's that no reason part? He's talking about Rabbam. That's talking about Paro. Paro did the evil for no reason, which means he didn't have a reason to go in and put so much problems, thank you, on the Jewish people. No, no, no. So he, well, why? So very good. So why did he rationalize it? Because when, okay, you know what? You'll understand it when you realize we're gonna have to understand the psychology of rationalization. Now see if it's gonna make, uh, if, it, if it'll make sense to you. Now the psychology of rationalization, before we get to ra- rationalization, we are going to have to speak of something called cognitive dissonance. Any psychology majors in here? Oh wow. Okay. Does anybody know what cognitive, does cognitive dissonance make a, uh, ring a bell to anybody? Okay, very good. You know what? I asked this in the men class. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, well, you know, like cognitive is something with thought. I have no idea what dissonance means. Uh, like, okay. So let me explain to you the psychology of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance was a coin term by a psychologist by the name of Leon Festinger in the 1950s. In the 1957, he did an experiment. And the experiment was as follows. I'll explain the experiment and then I'll explain where, how he came to his conclusion. The experiment was like this. The experiment was that he made a very, very boring experiment. Like literally, they were changing, turning knobs. Anybody familiar with this experiment? Yeah, Yeah? okay. So they were literally doing an extremely boring experiment. Now after they finished the experiment, Leon Festinger and his colleague goes over to them and says, hey listen, he says, there's another group, there's another person that's coming and doing the same experiment. I need you to go and tell him that this experiment was really exciting. Now this experiment was not really exciting. It was not exciting at all. It was very boring. But he told them, he said, listen, you do this, I'm going to pay you money to say that. And he split it into two groups. For one group, he gave $20 to go and say, hey listen, tell this next person that it was an exciting experiment. And then he gave another group only $1 Per person. And by the way, this is 1950, in the 1950s. So $20 means a little bit more than now. Now you go out for a slice of pizza and you're paying almost $20. But back then, you actually, you know, you actually could do something with $20. So, he goes and he says $20 for one group, $1 for another group. And he saw something very interesting. They both said the, ex- the experiment is very nice, it's exciting, you'll enjoy it. Then he invited them back. And he made, he, he sat with them one on one. And to the 20, $20 group people, he said, he asked them, how did you feel about the experiment? And they said, it was very, very boring. And then he asked them, would you come back again to do the experiment? And they said, no, it was very, very boring. We have no, we no interest in coming back again. Then he went to the $1 group and he says, how did you find the experiment? The, the experiment? And they were like, it was kind of interesting. And then he asked them, would you do it again? And they were like, yeah, we would come back again. Then he started thinking, he says, why is it that the $20 group did not want to come back again, but the $1 group did want to come back again? And this is where he came to the term of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, what it means is, is when you're having two conflicting ideas, beliefs, ideologies in you, 
You don't like that. You don't like having two conflicting ideas in you. You have to go and, and unify it. We like to be unified. We don't like to have conflicting ideas, specifically in ideologies. So he said something very interesting. For the, you have a question? No, both of them that it was very exciting. And then he found, and then he goes to the one dollar group. The one dollar group said that they would come back again. Now why did they come back again? Because they, they had this thought. So the twenty dollar group, they got twenty bucks to lie. In their mind, twenty bucks is a good enough reason, it's a sufficient reason for me to lie. I mean I'll make twenty bucks and I'm comfortable with that and that's okay. That's what they thought. But the one dollar group, they were like, it's such a boring experiment. I'm lying for one dollar? Like, how much of a lowlife am I? Like, I'm lying for one dollar? And they felt this conflicting ideology inside them. So something had to change. What did they do? They convinced themselves that they're not lying. They convinced themselves that really it's an interesting experiment. Really, they had a good time turning knobs. Really, they had a fun time in that. To the extent that they were even willing to come back in them. This is the idea of cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance, we're soon going to see, it actually spells through into rationalization. Now think of it like this. Say you're a normal human being and you think cheating is bad. You're on a test, you're not supposed to cheat. But let's say you cheated, right? God forbid you went and you cheated on a, on a certain test. So now, you have this cognitive dissonance. On one side, you know it's bad to cheat. But on the second time, you did cheat. So now, something's going to happen inside of you that's going... You're not going to be like, oh well, I guess I uh, you know, cheated this time. No. Something is going to change inside of you. You could be like, well, um, cheating is bad, but I only did it just once, never again. You'll do something, you'll say something to yourself to change yourself. Or you'll say something, for example, uh, um, this class is stupid, I don't need it. Or everyone cheats, exactly, everyone does it, what's the big deal, right? So the Russians tell me regarding insurance fraud. Hey, everyone, what's the, what's the big, you know, what's the, what's, the, what's the big problem? I'll tell you, this week, I was speaking to a group, um, and not that I have anything against Russians or anything in general, it just happens to be out of all the groups that I, that, that I speak at, almost every single time I bring this topic up, they always ask me about insurance fraud. And I'm like, what is with you people that you all do this? Like, do you have a meeting in Russian that everybody goes and does this? Now again, just because someone speaks Russian doesn't mean they commit insurance fraud. In, in, in fact, 99.9% of them do not. So don't uh, think of that. It just happens to be whatever. Um, the people, I guess, that I know. I don't know. This is the people that uh, come to ask me questions. So... I went and I was speaking to this guy and, and I told him the same idea with rationalization. I said, you know, he, had, he committed you know, insurance fraud and I asked him and I said, would you go and break into someone's house and steal? Go into their purse and take our money but God forbid. You know, started, all the Jewish words came out. Like, I just like, why would I ever go and say, God, you know, that I didn't do steal from somebody else? So I'm like, but you steal from insurance is also stealing. He's like, yeah, but it's not the same thing. You know, like, I'm like, what do you mean it's not the same thing? It's because, you know, Geico is not going to make a, they're not going to feel a difference if I steal 30 grand from them, or if I don't. So I asked him like this, I said, let's say you go to a multi-billionaire, and you steal 30 grand from them, he's not going to feel an iota of a difference. Is that called stealing? He's like, yeah. So I'm like, what about guy? It's different. I'm like, it's not different, stop saying it's different. It's not, you're rationalizing yourself that it's really okay. And they rationalize, and I was arguing with him for like 10 minutes. And he would not, would not budge. Like, no, but it's different. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, at the end of the day, even this guy called, so they're shareholders. They say, it's, come, it's coming out of someone's pocket at the end of the day. There's something that's going to affect it. Granted, it might be in a small iota, but it's still going to affect it. It's still stealing. Is it a different level? Whatever, fine. I'll give that to you. But it's still stealing. We rationalize our, our, you know, our problems. So let us go and try to delve into this. So, so the idea of rationalization, the root of it, is really cognitive dissonance. We have one thought. We know sinning is bad. But then we sin. But then we rationalize because we feel bad. So now let's go and delve into the different ideas, the different the rationalization. This is all based off psychology. We didn't get to the Torah aspect of it yet. 
We all know that smoking is bad. Now, don't ask me smoking. What? It doesn't matter. Whatever you smoke is bad. Anything that you're inhaling via, you know, that is bad. Um, so, if we know smoking is bad, and let's say you're a person that smokes. So now this is something that you have cognitive dissonance. You have some sort of conflicting ideology that's going inside of you. You know it's bad to smoke, but you smoke. So there's things that's going to happen in your mind, even subconsciously, that's going to make you change this. And that is, so let's start with one. Number one is you're going to, mod- you can modify it. And that is, you could say like, yeah, smoking is bad, but I don't do it that much. You know, and that could be like, for some people, one pack a day is not that much. Whatever it is, you'll say, I don't do it that much. So you're like, okay, it's not so bad. The other idea, as you could say, is you make it less important. You you uh, triple you make it like it's not such a big problem. You minimize it. Thank you. What you do is is that you say like you know you smoke, and you know it smoking is bad, but you say really smoking is not that bad. I mean, come on, it makes you lose weight, and you start minimizing the whole, the whole ideology of of smoking while you're changing it to make yourself feel good about it. That's number two. Number three is you could add more cognitions. For example, you could say yeah I smoke, but I exercise and I eat healthy. So you're convincing yourself that even though I'm doing something bad, it's not that bad. There are some people that tell me all the time, so I don't keep Shabbat, but I don't work on Shabbat. <laughs> I think God will give you a golden gold. You know, like, you're, like you deserve an award. Like you're, that's amazing. It is. It is better than nothing. But what do they do? They think that they're good right where they are. They're, they're, that's the most important thing is if you want to make a sin, that's up to you. But at least know that it's a sin. At least know that you're doing something bad. Because guess what? Then you will change. If you have a guy that is, uh, you know, constantly flirting with other girls and he's married. Now, if he thinks, well, I'm not doing anything wrong with them. I'm not touching them. I'm not doing anything. So if he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong, guess what? He's never going to change. And the same thing for the woman. But if they realize that they're doing something wrong, they might not change now. But down the road, they'll realize they have to change at one point. So the main thing that you have to do is to be true to yourself. Be honest to yourself. You're the main person that's preventing yourself from becoming great because you rationalize and you say, I don't need to change. No, you do need to change. You really do need to change. And if you don't, if you don't stop rationalizing, you will never change. The final idea is, is denying. Some people will deny completely. Smoking is bad, you smoke. They'll say, smoking is not bad. It's actually healthy for you. Right? They don't know what they're talking about, all the doctors. Really, it's healthy. It reduces stress. It, it gives you a, you know, it, it speeds up your metabolism. Ah, lung cancer, whatever. Those things are, you know, they'll rationalize to the extent that will deny completely. I deal with this all the time. I had a, I had a, a person that, uh, um, a, you know, a rabbi wanted me to speak to a certain, a certain person. This person was doing a very, very bad thing. Um, and, uh, the, you know, so he threw, basically threw away religion. So, I was supposed to go and speak to him to go and try to uh, convince him and, and prove to him that the, really the religion is true and it's not something made up. And this is something that we've been dealing for the past few months and we've been going through the series that we've been going through until this point. So um, I went and I tried to initiate some contact. I wanted him to come down. He didn't want to come down. Long story short, we were texting. And I told him like this. I said, listen, you know, do you believe that there is a God? He says, I know for a fact that there is no God. So I told him, I could prove to you that there is a God. He says, no, you can't. So I said, yes, I can. And then he says, it's not possible. So I said, let me prove it to you. And he says, it's impossible, I'm not interested. So now let me ask you this question. Was this guy looking to really find if there's a God or if there's not a God? 
Was he actually contemplating, you know, like I did a lot of research and upon my research, I found out that there's no. No, of course he's not because if I would be able to go and I told him I would be able to prove it to you and he denied the fact of even coming to even hear it, that means that he's not even looking. He's not searching for it, which means it is something very, very important. That when you go or when any person goes and they throw out religion, they throw out God, now you have to ask the question, what came first? Was there a reason to throw out God that came in first? Or... Did you actually search and then you found nothing and then you threw out God? Nine out of ten times, the reason is, is because there's a reason that they need to throw out God. This guy was doing a very bad sin and he had cognitive dissonance in him. He's like, if I'm doing this bad sin, this is not going good. But if I throw out God, then what I'm doing is not bad anymore because it doesn't matter. So now that I'm throwing out God, it doesn't matter. So now he doesn't even want to listen to hear if there's a God because he doesn't want the God. Why does he want a God? Because of the, the rationalization. The whole point that he threw out the God is not because he doesn't believe. He puts his kids in yeshivot, by the way. His kids are in a Jewish, you know, you know, you know, schools. He believes in it. He just convinces himself that it doesn't exist for his own, for his own rationalization. You have people that start diets, right? They're going on a diet. They're like good for like a week. And then you come and you see them they're like crying, there's like 7,000 cookies in front of them, and they're like, they're just inhaling the cookies, like, I don't know why I'm doing this, I'm still doing this, and you ask them like, stop eating the cookies, like, I thought you are on a diet, I'm starting next week, it's, it's Monday, it's the, you know, I'm not starting yet, and you know, and they have the ice cream tub that's going straight into them, they're intravenously inserting oil directly to their thing, you know, they're like, they're like, next week I'm starting, the, why is it next week, why can't you just say that you started the, the thing and you messed up? Because we rationalize. We don't like to say we messed up. Because if we say we messed up, that means that we were wrong and we have to change. But if we say, like, I'm, I'm starting now. You know, like, I'm, after I finish this tub, then I'm starting it, right? And then, you, know, and, you know, you start, we, we rationalize ourselves to convince ourselves that we're not doing anything wrong. If you're not, if you realize, if you go and you say, okay, listen, I started my diet a week ago. I messed up. Now you have to think, why did I mess up? And now you start thinking, you know what, because I had a bad day, because I had bad this. Then you can make it that you won't mess up the next time. Then you could work on yourself. But if you tell yourself, I didn't mess up, I didn't really start, like I'm starting right now, then you're not, you're not really helping yourself. You're fooling yourself. This is the idea of, of uh, rationalization. Yeah, this, we spoke about this before. In 1997, there was, uh, um, there was a cult by the name of Heaven's, uh, Heaven's Gate Cult. By, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Marshall Applewhite. He uh, convinced people that there was a spaceship coming, and if you want to, to get, and this is like a spaceship controlled, you know, the universe and things like that, and these aliens are like superhuman, you know, super beings, and these are the gods. If you want to get on the spaceship, you have to commit suicide, and you have to have a certain amount of quarters on you, whatever. You have tennis shoes and black spats. There's certain criteria that he gave, and then you're going to get into the, um, into the spaceship. And guess what? A lot of people committed suicide from that. A lot of people committed suicide. That became a very, very famous case. But they were part of the group that didn't, you know, I, I don't know if they didn't get the memo for the suicide, you know, but they didn't commit suicide. What they did though was something very interesting. They all bought a tel telescope. There was a comet. There was Haley Bob's comet that was coming past by. And the guy who was in charge of the cult said, at the end of the comet, that's where the spaceship is. And that's where we need to get. So they all bought expensive telescopes. And they looked in. They found the comet, but they couldn't find the spaceship. One of the reasons was because it didn't exist. But they didn't, they didn't think like that. And in fact, the people that didn't commit suicide, they took their expensive telescopes and they brought it back to the store, saying that there's something wrong with the telescope. And the store guy asked him, says, what's wrong with the telescope? He says, well, we found the comet, but we couldn't find the spaceship. Must be that there's something wrong with your telescope. 
Not once to the fifth thing for a second, like maybe, hey, maybe you have a problem psychologically and you're believing a guy that thinks that you're going to die and go on a spaceship. Like maybe that's a, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's not the problem, I'm not crazy. This telescope is broken. That's what's broken. So we change ourselves, we convince ourselves, even to the most extreme degree, we will go and convince ourselves that we're not doing anything wrong. We're going to convince ourselves that we're not. Now let me ask you a question like this. If you don't think you're ever doing anything wrong according to the Torah, is there ever a chance that you'll ever change yourself? And that's why we see so many people throughout their entire life stay in the same path. They stay in the same level. They don't change much. Okay. Well, in terms of like the obvious things like lying, stealing, cheating, that I think most people have awareness of that. But if you didn't like grow up that interest, and you really think that it's okay, right? Some things, I don't know. I can't You're on target. We're going to be speaking about that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch upon that. So, okay, so now let's go on. Now, I want to share with you something scientifically speaking. And again, let me repeat that because when I say scientifically, everyone believes me. When I say the Torah, I'll be like, well, you know, you know, but scientifically speaking, all right? So this is something that you could take home and believe it to your heart's content. Scientifically speaking, what does it mean that when you rationalize? And listen to this. It says that when somebody has mental inconsistencies, which causes you to have cognitive dissonance, which causes you to ha- rationalize, this can be physically uncomfor- uh, uncomfortable. And there were studies that were done, and it was written in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, that when we experience dissonance, when we experience this conflicting ideologies and beliefs within us, our bodies show signs of nervousness and tensions. We are, it, it manifests ourselves in a physical manifestation. It hurts us. It hurts us and we could see it in a physical manifestation manifestation to be to be uh, you know to be in conflict with ourselves and then the, you know the, the study goes on and says like this people who rationalize the most have the most tedious frustrating and unfulfilling lives and I'm quoting by the way and they go on and say all throughout all their their rationalizations they do provide emotional comfort but they also make them completely oblivious to reality and since they are oblivious to reality they make bad decisions and they stick to them, they lack initiative, they don't grow, they let opportunities slip away, and they end up selling themselves short. Think about what that does to you in the physical sense. Now when you think about that, think what it does for you for the, for the spiritual sense. Where and how far you're going to go. Now, this is really what prevents you from becoming great. People like to put the blame on other people. I had a bad upbringing, you know, I was delayed in school. Yeah, that's all, it all contributes to something. But at the end of the day, the reason why you're not great is because of you. People like to push blame on other people and other things and other beings and other ideas. But the real reason you're not religious, the real reason you're not, you know, a great person, the real reason you're not a great spouse, the real reason you're not arrogant is because of you. Stop blaming it at your upbringing. Stop blaming it on everything else. The real reason is deep down inside is you. And when we rationalize, we don't see that. And if we don't see that, we will never change. This is why the Rambam in Maimonides, in Hilchot Tshuva, uh, in the fourth chapter, he brings, you know, certain, and we're not going to go through all of them, he brings certain sins that our people are unlikely to ever to repent from it. Why? Because they don't think that they're doing anything wrong. <coughs> An example is, is that, let's say somebody eats from a table of, where there's food, where the, the owners are present. So he says, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, you're sitting in a table that, you know, the, the, you go to invite it to a house where they don't have enough food. And I'll tell you a story that happened to me. Um, in Israel, uh, when I was in Israel, so I wanted to go as an experience, uh, you know, just to experience, I went to the Kotel, to the Western world, and there's somebody there that goes and says, you know, do you need any meals? And they set you up with meals. So me and my friend thought it would be a good, ex- you know, ex- you know, experience, you know, experience, you know, experience to have. So we said, yeah, we need, we need a meal. And, and the truth is, we didn't even need a meal. They set us up with a family that 
the second that I walked in, all I wanted to do was leave. Because you saw it was a little hole in the wall. They obviously had no money. Everybody, all we ate was like a little bit of Israeli salad and a small piece of chicken. And I didn't want to eat it because they had kids over there. And I'm like, I'm like, I felt like I was literally taking food away from like the kids. I was starving. You know, it was Friday. You know, guys in yeshiva in Israel, you know, forget to eat on Fridays. Um, you know, because we're busy doing very important things. Um, and you know, so we, you, you go over there. I was starving on there, but I couldn't eat. I'm like, I can't. I'm like, and you see over there, it's a hole in the wall. I see their ribs through their shirts. You know, like, it's so, it, it, it hurt me so much to sit over there. And yet they're sitting over there. There's, there were three kids. I still remember this very clearly. There was a husband and a wife. Everybody was super thin. Um, and they were like, you know, on a diet, like the whole entire time. And I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go and actually eat. I felt so bad. And everybody got a specific amount. This, now, if you go, let's say you go into that particular house. They give you a meal, you're allowed to eat that. Then they put in the meal another extra piece of chicken. And you're like, oh, I'm starving, I didn't do anything. You know, like I just ran today, you know, I did exercise. And you go and you eat that. Now you think, that I do anything wrong? Why did I do anything wrong? It's like, the, you know, they put it out there, I'm allowed to eat it. But in essence, you took food away from people that they don't have. And now they're not going to tell you, hey, 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 that's for my children. They, by the way, these people were so, it was worth it for them so much. They want you. They were felt so good about doing the mitzvah the, of achnasat ochim, of welcoming guests, that it was worth it for them to eat less just to train their children and to show them how important it is to have a guest. Now we come and be like, can you, like I'm too lazy, I don't want to go shopping and I don't want to go. Like we come to that point, like look at what people who have nothing, how much they go and they focus to do that. Now you're going and you're eating their food, you don't feel anything bad. But in essence, you don't think you have to do tshuva. Why do you have to do tshuva? They gave you permission. But says the Rambam, this is one of the reasons that people never do tshuva on these things. Because they don't think that they're doing anything wrong. You have a guy that's going down the street and he's looking, looking at all the women and he's going and he's fantasizing them. He's gonna, they're going to tell me, I've got to do tshuva on that. He says, why? Did I touch them? Did I do anything with that? I didn't do any sin with them. I didn't do anything wrong with them. The same thing on the woman. The woman, they dress in modesty. He says, what did I do wrong? Says, oh, because of you, they don't even realize the sin that comes out from it. And they think, I never have to do tshuva on it. I never have to change myself on it. And guess what? Those people, says the Rambam, you will never, it, repentance is going to be very, very difficult for you. The, says, says Rab Dasar, he goes on and he says, right now we said the idea that when you make a sin, so the sin becomes as if it is permitted to you. You do repeat a sin, it becomes permitted to you. But the, but the, it goes on, Says, uh, you know, Abdesar, it says that what's even worse is that when a sin becomes, not only it's permitted, but it becomes a mitzvah. It becomes a good commandment to actually do the sin. And says, Abdesar quotes the, you know, the Chobos Abobos, the, the Shavah Plishut in the second chapter. It says that people that chase after the pleasures, he says, the pleasures become their Torah, and the bellies become their God. And they convince themselves that anything that they're doing is really a mitzvah, it's a good deed. And this is where you have people that begin, they start organizations that take people away from the Torah, and they think they're doing a good thing. Like, no, I'm just giving them an education. They convince us that there's organizations that, that build themselves on pulling people away from the Torah, and they convince themselves that they're doing, they're doing a good thing. That's why it says, in the Gemara in Eruvin, page 19a, it says that even in the gates of hell, in the gates of Gehenom, the wicked people are not going to do tshuva. Now the question is, why? Why are the wicked people, they did so many sins, they're standing in the gates of Gehenom. They're standing in the gates of hell. How are they not going to do tshuva? And the answer is because they never thought they did anything wrong. 
They're thinking that God is sitting there behind the curtain and he's going to be like, ah, I just got you. Ah, that was a good one, right? You know, prank. All right, come on. You know, you're going upstairs. They really believe that they're not doing anything wrong. And even if they're coming to the gates of hell, they're not going to change because we convince ourselves, we convince ourselves that we don't have a problem. And this is why Osman Khulin, page 91a, says that the Satan, the evil inclination, it looks like, it, it makes itself appear to you either like a, a, like an idol worshiper, like an evil person, or like a Tamid Chacham, a righteous person. And the question is, how could, the, how could the Satan can make yourself like a righteous person? The answer is, it's because it convinces yourself that really what you're doing is really a good deed. Like, no, we're going, we're not really going clubbing, we're just going, we love the music, you know, like the music really, and I'm like, the music sounds like someone's having a seizure on a piano, you know, like how do you, what do you mean you like the music? It's not, you're not going there because you like the music. If you like the music, go to your room, and just bang some pots and pans together. And uh, oh, well, you're a rabbi, you never heard till the beat drops. You know, like, I still don't understand what that means. Um, <clears throat> but it sounds psychotic to me. And uh, it sounds like something you really have to enjoy when you're on psychedelic drugs. That would make a little bit more sense to me. You're like, no, we're just going. Like, you know, yeah, you know, like, it's really hot. That's why we dress this way. Like, you know, like, you know, God is not in the Miami zip code, obviously. You know, like, we convince ourselves certain things. And it's not a problem. It's not a problem for us. This, to the extent that not only it's not a problem, and I've heard this before, they're like, no, I'm taking my friend. She's really depressed. She needs this. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't realize there was a parenthesis in the Torah. You know, like, you're not going to do a sin unless your friend is depressed. Then you could go clubbing, and then it's okay. It's not a problem. There was no, there's, there, I didn't see any asterisk over there going on for any future. But what do they think? Not only did they not do anything bad, they think they're the biggest rabbit in. What are you talking about? Like after a night tonight, I felt like I gave my friend so much encouragement. We went to bars and we had a good time and we drank a ton of non-kosher alcohol. We didn't know that it was non-kosher, but you know, we just, whatever. You know, we did all these things and we came over there and now she's so much happier. Uh, yeah, until she, you know, the hangover kicks in. Of course she's going to be, you know, happier. And they think they're the biggest rabbits in. Like, who needs a blessing? You know, like, I'm literally on a spiritual high. They convince themselves, not only did they do not do anything wrong, but they did something good. It was a positive thing. Like, no, 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 come here, let me give you a blessing. You know, I just did a great, uh, great mitzvah. Um, I set myself up, my friend up, she's very depressed, but I sent her to the non-Jew, but don't worry about it. Like, she's not going to marry him, because, you know, obviously she's not going to marry him. You know, like, the craziest things I've heard of. The craziest thing I thought of. And they convince themselves that they are right. Yeah. True. So is there a thing where God purposely created certain people that way? Like that person is not meant to gain much awareness or insight to certain things. That's just, for whatever reason, that's just their fate or something. Like, yeah. Why is that? that it comes I'll explain so that. To some people and nearly impossible to others for whatever their it's an excellent weaknesses point. are and why... It's an excellent point. I'll bring it up. There is one particular character trait that hits it on the nail and what, what that makes it. That some people are able to see that and some people are not. And we're going to speak about that very shortly. So you're, you're right on target. The, um, but when we're going and we're, we're discussing the idea of sinning from a good, pers- from, from your, from your good intention, this goes back even to the first sin of Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava, when they ate from the tree, God told them, look at the extent of it. God says, do not eat from the tree. Do not eat from the Etzadas. And they ate from it. 
they went and they rationalized to the extent that it was from the good. How did they rationalize it? Adam went and said, listen, he says, if I'm going to go, God created me in a certain state. Now imagine if I bring myself into a lower state, and then I reach a higher state, which means I'm bringing myself into a place of darkness, then I can make an even greater Kiddush Hashem. It's like somebody who's saying, like, I'm going to fall so low, and then I'm going to do such a good Shubah. It's going to be so awesome, I'm going to be so high. And they, they convinced themselves, even Chava, what was, the, what was the rationalization of Chava? Chava was thinking, he said, listen, he said, there's a tree over here, and this tree is like, oh, magical powers, like, you can't touch this tree, you can't eat this tree, you can't do stuff with this tree. And she thought, she says, what is going to be for my descendants? My descendants are going to go and they're going to idolize this tree. This tree is going to turn into a god. Says Chava, I'm going to go, I'm going to eat from the tree. I know it's bad, but I'm going to do it for the good. I'm going to, I'm going to sin from the bad from the good. It says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm going to sin for it. Why? And I know I'm going to suffer. I know I'm doing it just to prevent my children and my grandchildren, my aunt, and all my descendants from never ever going and making this tree into an idol worship. So, since when do signs work? Right, if you ever go into a synagogue, you realize signs don't work. Silence your cell phone. You'd be like, oh, you know, like, and then, you know, M&M all of a sudden is in the synagogue, you know, uh, you know, you know, telling the real Shlomi to stand up. You know, like, it's, it's like, you know, it, it's obviously something that uh, uh, people tend not to, signs don't work as much as we anticipate. <laughs> yeah, wet paint, you usually see the, you know, the, the handprint also. I'll be like, I don't believe you. It's most likely a Jew um, <laughs> as doing that. Because a non-Jew would be like, wet paint? Okay, I'm not going to touch it. We're like, how wet are we talking about? You know, like, you know, I'll sniff yeah. it. I'll be like, you know, like, oh yeah, it's pretty wet. You know, it's, you know, it's pretty good. Okay, so in any case, the idea is, is that but what's even worse is when we, not only we rationalize, but we convince ourselves that it's really a good deed. And this is what the Pasuk in Mishlei, chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Kol ish yashal be'enav. Man's, let me literally translate, man's every way is straight in his own eyes. Everybody thinks they're perfect. You ever realize it? You ask the person, what's the, what's a good Jew? And they usually say like, someone like me. You know, like anybody more than me is a fanatic. Anybody less than me is practically non-Jewish. I'm just perfect where I, where I am. And you ask, and you start seeing them, like, what do you think about fanatics? I'll see them. What are you talking about? Like, what? You know, they're going crazy. And you ask somebody who does slightly less than you, and be like, this guy is going to the deepest part in hell. You're like, you're like, you are perfect where you are. Everybody is perfect wherever they are. But says Rav Dasar, and this is where we're going to bring out, the, you know, a very, very important point. What's even worse than everything that we just mentioned, What's far worse is the pride. What's wrong with pride? Listen to this. Says the Gemara, says that, if, that God says that him and an arrogant person can no longer live in the same world. And the question is why? Why can't, God is infinite. God can't live with a pride person. If you ever wonder this question, everyone says, is God and I can't live with a, is it God says I and this arrogant person cannot live in, this, in, in the world. And the answer is it's not from God's deficiency. It's from the guy's deficiency. The person's deficiency. If a person is arrogant, he has no room for God. And that's why him and God says, I and I cannot live together with him in this world. It's not because of God, it's because of you. You don't have any place for God. And that's why the Gemara in Bahot, page 43b, says that, it, that someone who behaves arrogantly pushes against the feet of the Divine Presence. What does it mean, pushes against the feet of Divine Presence? Divine Presence comes in levels, in different levels. The feet is the lowest level. Somebody who is arrogant will not even see God's recognition even on the lowest level. They will refuse to see it. They wouldn't be able to see it. This is the great danger of, the, of arrogance. And what's also the problem of arrogance? The problem of arrogance is that the person separates himself from the community. They separate themselves from the community. Now what happens when you separate from the community? First of all, you don't have the merit of the community. You realize that when you have a merit of the community, you, like, you have a merit of everybody together. That's why it's so important to pray with a minyan. To pray with a, you know, with a, uh, you know, with a, with a group of, uh, you know, ten men, a minyan, it's a very, very important thing. You have, a, you have an extra power over there. 
The, the, you know, the idea is, is that when someone's arrogant, he excludes himself from the community. Also, we know in the Mishnah Sotah says, In the way that a person judges himself, that's the way that God's going to judge you. So if you consider yourself arrogant, you consider yourself above everybody else, God's going to judge you like that. Oh, you think you're better than everybody else? Then why don't you act better like than everybody else? And then God's going to hold you, unfortunately, accountable, accountable you know, for that. This is why we see that an arrogant, pers- an arrogant person rationalizes on steroids. Like he put rationalization on steroids. They rationalize so much because they're so arrogant. It can never be something that they're doing anything wrong. They'll rationalize on all aspects and all angles. This is why the Gemara says in Sotah that if somebody goes in arrogant, it's considered as if he serves idolatry. And the Gemara in Baba Batra, page 10b, says a haughty person, an arrogant person, it's as if he we- he's going to go and he's going to fall into Gehenom. That's why also, there's a very interesting pasuk in Mishnah, in Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 5. It says, Toavat Hashem kol lev yad liyad lo It says over there, everybody, everyone in a holy heart is an abomination to God. And it says also, I didn't put the end of the, oh, it says also that he will, that he will not go unpunished. It says over there, an arrogant person, thank you, will not go unpunished. Now the question is, why not? Why can't this arrogant person do tshuva? Let him do tshuva. Why is Zeng is not going to go unpunished? And I think it's my own personal idea on it. It says, you know why he's not going to go unpunished? Because if he's arrogant, he's never going to do tshuva. He's never, because he's never going to think he's doing anything wrong. That's why the pasuk says, he's going, he's never going to go unpunished. Because if somebody is arrogant, he's never going to do tshuva, he's not going to fall into, into, uh, into the punishment. And this is also what we see in the Rabbeinu Yonah, in Shalat Tshuva, the Gates of Repentance. Chapter 1, uh, you know, 27, uh, the 627, it says, that arrogance causes many sins. So the, set, the source of, of many sins is arrogance. And it brings the Pasuk in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 14. And when your heart becomes order, you forget God. God comes out of the picture. And this is why the Egelta Amban, it's a shame, it's getting late. I wish I could tell you the story behind the Egelta Amban, but we don't have the time for it. The Amban, the Nachmanides wrote a letter to his son. And he says something very interesting over there. It says, he, the, the, the gist of the letter is save yourself from arrogance and work on humility. He says, why? It says, from humility you will be saved from anger. It's a very bad sin, arrogance, anger, that causes many people to sin. And here we see why that it causes many people to sin. Not only does it cause people to sin, but it prevents them from doing tshuva. Now, I know it's getting a little bit late. Yeah, obviously you can take anything to, 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 to you know, to an extreme level. Says the Rambam, Ram, Maimonides says, as every character trait, you have to be in the middle. You have to be in the middle, except for one character trait, except for arrogance. Arrogance, you have to go far in the right. You can, you have to stay as far away as possible from arrogance in all angles of it. In all I'm angles. Saying, like, my level of arrogance, I, I don't think God is going to let me go unpunished for not. So you're rationalizing. <laughs> no, I'm saying, like, I mean, any person that wants to work on themselves and grow themselves automatically will see that as a punishment. Is that the same thing as anger? Yeah, arrogance is a source of anger. What, what you're doing now is what, it, it might not be on an extreme level, but it's the, I, the same crux of, of, of rationalization. What you're saying is like, okay, but like, is God really going to care so much if I do this? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I'm, if I act in an arrogant manner, but I also want to work on myself, I view that as a character post I want to work on. Oh, so then you're okay, so, so it's good. Not the, so I'm not going to get punished to the extreme of God Right, right, right. Okay, I hear what you're saying. Yes, if you're working it, yeah. Listen, I'm not God, and I can never ever tell you how much you're gonna get punished for certain sin, and no one can ever tell you. Only God knows that. But as long as you're working on something, you're in the right direction. And if you're in the right direction, I'm sure God in His, you know, in His, uh, you know, 
infinite mercy is going to go and put that into consideration. But at least you're working on it. You have to be working on it. Okay. This is the time. It's a little bit earlier than I usually give my announcement, but it, we still have a little bit more to go. So if anybody does need to leave at any point in time, do not feel you know obligated to stay here till the end. You know you're able to leave. I know it's getting late, but we are going to be here for a short little while later because I do have to have some clarity. In it. You have some questions? Yeah. Okay, get it at then. Then get, we'll we'll deal with the questions at then. Let's try to get through as much as the as the topic that we have here. I want to share with you a, a story that should um, that should bring this out in you know in a little uh, um, actually in a strong bit. There was once a king and a queen, and they worked very very hard on their on their country. They worked very very hard in the kingdom, and everybody loved them for that. You know, they, 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 this was like an awesome king and queen that it ruled it very very well. The only problem was that they didn't have any children. And they went to all the holy people, all the scientists, all, all the doctors. No one was able to do anything you know, for them. But, you know, the king wanted a child. Why did he want a child? He says, I worked so hard for this kingdom. I changed this kingdom so much. I revolutionized this entire kingdom. The only person I want to give this over to is somebody that I, that I, that I bred from when they were born for this. And the queen wanted even more than a king. The queen says, says I, you know, like, I need a child. I need a child so badly that, that, she, that she wants it. So she goes and, and, uh, um, and, and they started thinking about what am I going to do? What are we going to do to go and try to, um, to have a child? So they, thought, they realized nothing is working. So they decided maybe what we're going to do is they thought about adoption. What about adoption? Maybe they could go and they, and they, and they could adopt. Now... The king said, he says, the only reason that they're going to go and they're going to adopt is only going to be from a newborn. He says, why? He says, and if we adopt, no one ever is going to be ever able to know that we adopt because that's going to spill disaster for this child. If the child, if everybody finds out that this child really is not of royal blood, it's going to cause a revolution. It's going to cause, you know, him to be overthrown. So, they decided that they're going to adopt. They're going to, they're going to find the, you know, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't want, you know, their child even before the child is born and they're going to adopt that child. And they found a particular, you put it closer so it actually gets in. They, they found a, uh, they found a particular, um, they found a particular, uh, you know, woman who didn't want her child even before it was born. And they, they put her in the castle. They made sure that no one knew about it. They really put it in a, a very secluded fashion. And the child was born and it was Mazatov, it was a baby boy. And the king and queen took it and they cherished it and they loved it. And the queen was so infatuated with the love for her, this, this adopted child that she would refuse any nurses to help her. She did everything herself. She woke up seven times a night. She did, you know, like everything she did to herself, she refused to have any, any help. And she grew a very, very close attachment to this child. Now, once this child started to talk, Right away, they started educating. Because they said the whole purpose of this child, this child is going to take over the kingdom. And we want to make sure they had such a love and a desire for also for the kingdom that they wanted the, the, the people to also continue it. And they, they bred this child for that. So when the child started to talk, they found all the smartest, the wisest teachers in all the land. And they went and they hired them. Now, the woman was a very smart woman, the, the queen. And she said, listen, says... There's going to come a time where the child is going to fall, or is going to be an adult. He's going to fall down. He comes from simple blood. He doesn't come from royal blood. That's going to kick in at one point in time. She's thinking, let me think of the rufua before the makah. Let me think of the honor, of the, of the fixing before the problem comes in. And she decided she's, she took all her special agents. She took all the CIA in her, in our, in her, uh, in our, in her country. She took the best, best, you know, you know, agents and said, listen, your mission is you're going to go and you're going to search the entire world for the wisest person in the world and bring him to me. And that's your mission. So they went on their mission. It took them, you know, about two years. They went from every nook and cranny in, in, in the world. And they found out, out of all the people, three wise people came into things. They were at the top. So they sent her this message. She says, bring them here at all costs. I want them in front of me. 
They came a few months later, two out of the three people. She says, what happened to the third one? They said, listen, there's one guy. He's known as the old man. He lives in a very far away kingdom. He refuses to come for nothing. He says, we can't do anything about it. We tried to offer him all the money. We tried everything. He's refusing to come. She says, okay, fine, listen. Let's see what I have over here. She goes to these two wise men and she goes and she tells them, first question she asked them, who is the wisest person in the world? So one guy, the first guy says, me. She says, here's your money. Thank you. Go home. I don't need you. He says, if someone has arrogance, he's definitely not wise. She goes over to the second guy. And she says, smart woman. She goes up a second guy. She says, who is the wisest person in the world? The guy thinks for a second. He says, there's an old man in you know, a certain mountain. And she's like, I'm familiar with this old man. He says, okay, you're staying. And, he say, and she goes to him and she says, listen. He says, I want you to write me a book. And I want you to research all the psychology that we have in the world today. And what happens if somebody falls? How to make themselves better. Better character traits. Better everything. How to fix a person. Guy says, fine. And he starts getting to work. He's working there for a few weeks and she starts thinking, she says, listen, he says, I'm going to get this guy, but says, but this is second to the best. He says, I can't give my son second to the best. He says, I need the best of the best. She decides, she says, you know what? I'm making the trip. I'm traveling across the world to this other old man. I'm going to go and have him write a book for me. I'm going to speak to him face to face. She arranges the thing. She travels for a few weeks. She, she reaches to this faraway country. She asks a few people. She, they go and they direct her to this, to this place in the, you know, in the woods. She meets this old man. And she tells him the whole scenario. She tells him, listen, I have a child. And this child, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, prepping him to become the next ruler. We need a book. We need all the wisest sayings of how to fix a person in case a person falls. The guy says, I hear what you want. He says, okay, I'll work on it. And she was like, listen, I travel for a few weeks. And she says, it will be very beneficial for you if you could finish it very quickly and I could bring it home with me. And, I'm, and she's like, very beneficial. And then she takes out like a bag of gold coins and drops it. And she's like, there's a lot more when that came from. And, um, you know, so he goes and says, fine. And he starts walk, working on it. She's staying in the nearest uh, world of Astoria Resort, whatever it is, in the nearby over there. And uh, um, she gets a message one day later. The old man wants to see you. She says, fine. Okay, he probably has some questions what I need. She goes over to him. He has a little book on his desk. And she's like, you know, he wanted to see me. She's like, he's like, yeah, you requested a book. Here's a book. And she's like, you finish it in a day? And he's like, yeah, here it is. She opens up and she's like, it's a tiny little pamphlet. She's like, she's like, where's the rest of this? She's like, everything that you need is in there. So uh, she goes and she's like, she's like you know, she feels like she's getting gypped. He says, you know, I just gave you like $7 million. For the, you know. And she goes and she opens up the book. She opens up a chapter that's titled Change. And she reads over there in that entire chapter, one sentence. And in the sentence it says, one cannot change the direction of the wind, but you can adjust the sails to reach your destination. And she's like, what is this? He's like, he's like what's going on over here? And he's like, I don't understand what's going on over here. So the old man says, a prince will understand exactly what that means. And she realized she's not getting anything out of it. She's like, this is what he's getting. She's like, thank you very much. Uh, you know, she gives him, she pays him the rest of the money and she goes back on her way. She comes back to her, um, to her, you know, to her castle, to her kingdom. And she, you know, when she comes back, the other wise men also finished a book. And she, she gave, she gave him a book. It was like a 5,000 page book over there. She's like, this is what I'm talking about. She paid him double what she paid the other guy. She says, this is a book. And she puts those two books on her dresser and she leaves it there. That night the king comes in and he sees two books on the dresser. And he says, what, what are these books? And, he says, and she explains him, this is the guy from, you know, the small one is from the faraway land, this is the guy from here. And this is very interesting. It piqued the, the curiosity of the king. He opened up the books. He comes over to her a few weeks later and she says, she says tell me again, where did you get that small book? And she's like, oh, there's an old crazy guy that lives in the woods. I don't know. This is what he gave to him. And she's like, why? Well, you, you know, you read it? And she's like, he's like, yeah. She's like, and she's like, did you understand anything? He's like, no one can understand it, right? He's like, what are you talking about? 
He's like, there's genius in this book. There's so much wisdom in this book. It's unbelievable. I says, I need to meet whoever wrote this book. And she's like, you, you understood the book? And he's like, of course I understood the book. He says, why yes? I was like, no, no, I understood it too. I, you know, I don't know. He's like, you know, it's a good book. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and, and the king goes, and he says, somebody who wrote such a book like this, I have to go and visit him. He went and he travels to this old man. He became a chassid of this old man. Oh, he came by coming. And the old man gave him such advice that he was able to double his kingdom in size within a few short years. He became, this man was, was beyond the wisdom that anybody has ever comprehended before. And when the king told his wife and he told his queen, he said, listen, he says, that other book he gave you is nice and dandy. Chuck it in the garbage. I'm going to help you. This book, this is where the wisdom is at. She's like, yeah, I thought so too. You know? And he goes and she uh, you know, chucks the other book you know, in the garbage and she keeps that book. Anyways, the kid is growing up. Taught, being taught by the wisest of the wise, you know, all the people with the long beard and long eyebrows, right? They're teaching him, and uh, they're teaching him the way of, you know, the tiger and everything. And uh, they go, and um, and as the years go by, and he gets a little bit older, they see this kid has a little bit of a problem. He was a very smart kid, but he had a little bit of an anger issue. He uh, used to, uh, you know, while he was little, he already condemned people to death, you know, while he was still, you know, he was like, off your head, you know, he was already, he like, he already saw himself as a king. And the king was very nervous about this. He says, a ruler cannot be angry. A ruler cannot have this arrogant problem, because then everybody's going to die. Like, no one's going to survive, you know, this, this type of ruler. So he was very, and he told his wife, he said, listen, he says, if this kid doesn't change, I cannot make him king. I cannot rightfully go and make him king. I, I can't. I, I just can't. I would love to. He's my son. You know, I even though adopted, but he's still my son. I, I need to, I, I can't, you know, with a full heart go and make him king if he has this problem. So this, the mother, the queen, she was so close to the son, she says, no, it has to happen. She's like, this is all that she wanted. She wanted only the best for her son. So she goes over to the child, and she hires the best psychologist, the best specialist, the best therapist that money could buy, and they went and they trained this child, and the child went through his ups and downs, but all in all, the child was not able to overcome its anger. Like, he went through his good times, but then he, like, spilled it all. Like, the, you know how many servants were fired just from this, you know, 10-year-old? It was unbelievable. It was very, very difficult. And the king kept on bringing up this concern. So the mother, when this child was in his teens already, the mother goes over to the child and says, listen, you want to be a ruler, at, you know, at one point in time, right? And he's like, of course, why, you know, why wouldn't I? I'll take over dad, you know, and after, you know, the kingdom. And she says, you know that uh, if you keep on acting the way that you act, you're not going to be taking over the thing. He says, you know, dad is very upset with, with the way that you're acting. He can, not, cannot rightfully make you, you know, you know, king because of that. And this really took it home for the, for the kid. And he's like, he's like, wow, he says, I didn't realize it was so bad. I didn't realize I had to do that. So all of a sudden he had a reason to change. And change he did. Enough to convince his father. At least whenever he was around his father, he was always happy and smiling, never angry. He knew that he had to go in to convince his father to give him the kingdom. And this went up for some time. And the father felt, you know, like, I think he, you know, he's working on himself. He's doing a good job in it. He comes to marriageable age and he finds him, he's looking for the princess. What they used to do is they used to marry, you know, kingdom to kingdom to, you know, to grow the kingdom. And he found, he got an amazing shidduch. His shidduch was, it was the most powerful king alive at that time. This is a king that never lost a war. He was a king that ruled over the majority of the world. And he says, you know, if I can make truce with him, then I'm good, said the king. So he said, they made a shidduch. Mazatov, they got married. It was unbelievable. It was amazing. Uh, you know, the wedding was, un, you know, unheard of. Time goes by. And all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the prince's tendencies of anger sort of crept out. And it sort of slipped a few times. And the princess was like, well, you know, what's going on over here? I never, never saw you like this before. So the prince told her, he said, listen, to be honest with you, this is who I am. This is my essence. I mean, I try not to be angry, but I'm a very angry person at heart. I, you know, I've tried as much as I can. We've tried to fix it. We've got the most, you know, sophisticated psychologists and the highest, most advanced therapists to try to help me. I've tried every technique in the book. 
it doesn't help. So I have ups and downs. Something, unfortunately, you're going to have to get used to. Nothing a woman wants to hear, let alone a princess. So, you know, time went by. And, uh, you know, as he got comfortable, it got, you know, worse and worse. And eventually, the, you know, the king passed away. And, you know, he inherited the kingdom. And it came to a point that, you know, it became really bad. And the guy was arrogant. He was screaming at the children. He was screaming at the, at the queen. And, uh, you know, so the queen goes over to him and he says, you know, I really love you. I really do appreciate you. You have good qualities. He says, but this has gone too far. The anger, the screaming, the arrogance, it's got to stop now. Now, she spoke to him with authority like her father owns the majority of the world. And that's with the authority that she spoke to him. And he wasn't used to being spoken like that. And he, he just snapped. He's like, he's like, how dare you speak to me like that in my castle, in my kingdom? You speak like that to me? He's like, you will never ever speak to me like that again. And she grew up as a princess, you know, she didn't have a low self-esteem. And she's like, oh yeah? He's like, okay. She walks out. She writes a nice little letter to her father. Dear daddy, you know, you know, hubby is not really treating me so well. Uh, you know, he's getting a little ang- arrogant, you know, with me. Can you please give me some advice? Now, when the strongest king, when the most powerful king in the world gets this letter, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to like, my dearest darling, you're a woman, and it's the 1100s. You, this is your, he's not going to go for that. He's like, he rounds up a small army, and he makes his way to visit his son-in-law. Um, now, a small army of a, of a king that powerful was bigger than all his army of the son-in-law. And now the son-in-law hears that his father's coming, father-in-law is coming to town. He doesn't think twice about it. He's probably coming, you know. He's and then they tell him he's coming with an army. He says, yeah, he's probably coming to conquer some other land, whatever. Don't worry about it. Let's prepare a big feast. And they spend millions and millions of dollars to prepare this most magnificent feast. And uh, the king comes in, and the son-in-law comes in to greet him. As other, one king to another, you know, shalom aleichem. They give the, you know, I don't know, you know, the Gorski kiss, right? Every, you know, to the side. And uh, the French kiss, right? The ear is like, oh, you know, thank you so much for coming. So we created a big feast for you. Sit at the hay table. The, the, the powerful king, the father doesn't say a word. They're sitting over there. The big feast comes. They bring all the most expensive scotch, most expensive wines, the most expensive meats. They're eating, they're drinking, they're having a good time. And the king is drinking and eating, he's enjoying himself, right? He's got his, all his bodyguards behind him. And uh, then he puts his hand on the son-in-law. And the king was a very powerful warrior. He's been to war more than this, you know, the son-in-law has been. And then, you know, he looks at his son-in-law, his son-in-law looks at him, they smile at each other. Then he gives a little squeeze on the shoulder. <laughs> and the son-in-law's be like, you know, like smiling uncomfortably. But then the squeeze gets a little bit more stronger and stronger and stronger until you hear a little bit of like crunching. And he's like, what you doing, dad? You know? And the, father, the king comes closer to him and whispers into his ear. And he says, if you don't start treating my daughter, you know how it gets scary when someone powerful speaks to you even in a lower voice? Then, you know, it's like, if you don't start treating my daughter like she is supposed to, then I will come in here and I will remove you from the throne. I will sit on your throne and I will make you my servant. Do you understand? He's like, yes, daddy. You know, uh, gotcha. You know, because you don't mess with that. This king never lost the war. And he knew that very well. And the king says, cool, yeah. Gives him a little tap on the back, gives him a little maybe kiss on the forehead. You know, like, I always knew you'd be a good son-in-law. And, uh, and then he finishes and he leaves. Now, now the king had a reason to all of a sudden work on his arrogance. You know, all of a sudden he was the best husband. 
You know, he was serving his wife. He was creating presents from her. He's like, hey, listen, so for today's presents, I have actually made it out of you. This is my macaroni necklace for you. You know, <laughs> I've made this from scratch, you know, to show you my love, you know, for you. I've created this painting of rose petals, you know, for you. He's going and he's like, you know, you know, like, can you just tell your father, you know, that, you know, I'm like super nice to you, right? Like he was making sure he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. But the problem, the, the, the trick was is that when somebody goes and tries hard in a relationship, even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, they end up becoming invested in the relationship. And guess what? He started becoming invested in the relationship. He started becoming, he started to fall in love with his wife like he never fell in love, you know, before because he started doing. Love means when you give to somebody else. And he started giving so much like he's never given to anybody else before that he started to appreciate who his wife was. Time went by and it was good for a while. A good few years was really good. But then, you know, Tendencies seemed to creep out and he started reverting back to his old ways. And it went up and down. And whenever he reverted back to his old ways, his wife, in a very, very sophisticated, loving way, says, hey, listen, honey, I love you and I appreciate you, but I just want to remind you, you're falling a little bit. And he's like, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, please forgive me. And he goes and he fixes himself right away. And that worked most of the time. Until one time. One time he comes in from a brutally bad loss of a war. He was in a war, he lost so many people, he was such in a bad mood. His wife didn't see him for a long time, she came to see him. And unfortunately, when someone has a bad day, the first person that gets it is usually the wife. And he gave it to her. And, you know, she did what she usually does. She says, hey honey, you're falling. I just want to put you back where you are. I'm trying to help you. And he, this, it didn't work. He's like, help me? He's like, help me? He's like, this is my castle. This is my kingdom. I hate having to dance around you. He says, you're not helping me. He says, I will behave the way I want to behave. And she was, she began to talk anymore. And he said one of the stupidest things that a man could ever say. He says, if you know what's good for you, it doesn't matter what comes after that. It is irrelevant. But he says, if you know what's good for you, you're going to be silent right now. And she's like, if I know what's good for me. And she's like, she's like, oh, really? You want to dance? He's like, you want to do this? She's like, you know, hold my, no, she's like, all right, let's do this, you know, and she was like, you want to tell me, are you sure you want to do it? And the king's like, yeah, I want to do it. You know, he wasn't taking no for it. I was like, I'll take your father. You know, I was like, I'll take, and, and she was, you know, once it got heated, so he started all, he started walking very fast towards her and she got scared for a second and he was walking very fast towards her, not sure what his plan was, which is usually most men in most situations, not sure what the next thing they're going to say. And he's walking very fast and as he was walking, he unfortunately tripped over his feet. And as he tripped over his feet, he sort of pushed her, and she fell down. And the second she fell down, he started, he's like, <gasps> he's like a girl. He's like, oh my goodness. He's like, I cannot believe, I am so sorry, I didn't mean that. He started shaking, I would never hurt you. And she was, she was like, you know, she was scared of him. She started moving back. She's like, she's like, you know, he was wanted to help her up. She's like, you stay away from me. He's like, he's like, that is it, that's enough. He's like, you have gone too far. And then he realized, he really went too far. He went on his knees like, please, I, I went too far, I'm sorry. I know, I didn't want to hurt you. I would never hurt you. And she's like, yeah, maybe not now, but eventually it will happen. He's like, I would never hurt you. I never hurt the kids. And she's like, the buck stops here. It's over. And he's like, please, please don't do it to me. And he's like, he's like, she's like, you know what? He's like, I won't tell my father. I'll tell you that. I won't tell my father, but I want you out of the house. He's like, you're no longer in this castle. And he's like, please, I'll change. I'll do anything. He says, you change, you change out of the castle. He says, then you come back. And he thought, he's like, aha, I have a chance. There's something I'm going to do. So he says, fine, he'll do it. He'll take it. He leaves the castle. He goes over to his mother. His father passed away. His mother was still alive. His mother was an old woman at the time. He goes and he starts crying over to her. 
And he says to his mom, I don't know what to do. He says, I can't control myself. He says, I've tried so hard, nothing works. It doesn't help. I don't know what to do. I can't control my anger. I can't control my, I can't control my arrogance. So he, and then he goes on. He says, you know, it's not even the kingdom that I care about anymore. He says, I love her so much. I love her. I don't even care about the kingdom anymore. I grew so much to so much of the level that all I care about is her. He says, I hurt her so bad and she's right for kicking me out. He says, but mom, what could I do? The mother says, well, I don't know what you could do. You could only change. It's the only option that you have. And suddenly she remembered. She says, you know what? When you were younger, I went to the wisest man in the world and he wrote me a book. Check that book. Look into that book. There is something in there. He opens the book. He looks at where it says that he needs to change and he reads the same sentence. You can't change the direction of the wind. You can adjust the sails to reach your, de- your, your, uh, your destination. He's like, I don't know what this means. He's like, mom, what does this mean? She's like, I have no clue. Only your father understood it. He says, what am I supposed to do with this then? He says, go travel to the old man. Maybe he's still alive. Maybe you'll be able to get an answer from him. He says, he has nothing else to lose. He goes, he takes a few servants, and he goes and he travels to this old man. He travels to this old man. He gets to this king and says, is this old man still alive? They told him, he says, barely. He's in one step in the next world already. He says, I need to see him immediately. They go into him. He's sleeping, you know, majority of the time. The king says, I need to wake him up. This is a life and death emergency. He wakes him up. And, he, and the, this old man wakes up. And he says to him, he says, I'm sorry to bother you, but I need your help. He says, you're supposed to be the smartest man in the world. You wrote this book for my mother. And he looks at the book and he says, oh yeah, I remember your mother. Smart woman. He says, what can I do for you? He says, I don't understand anything that's written in here. He says, what do you mean you don't understand? He says, uh, are, you, uh, are you the prince? And he's like, yeah. And he says, are you now a king? He says, yeah. And he says, you don't understand what's written in the book? And he says, no, I don't. And the old man's like, huh. And he's like, what? He's like, no, nothing. He says, uh, um, what's your problem? Uh, he says, uh, you know, I have you know, a big arrogant you know, issue. I have a big pride issue. I'm always getting angry. And the old man asks him a question. He says, let me ask you a question. Does your father also, or did your father also get angry? And the guy thinks, and he says, you know, I've never seen my father angry in his entire life. And the old man then repeats, and he says, and you don't understand anything in this book. And he says, no. He says, I don't. And the old man says, okay, so I'll tell you what you need to do. He says, the, the old man says, says the... The antidote of arrogance is humility. I want you to go to your mother and ask her to tell you something that will make you humble. She has a piece of information that she has never told you before and that will make you humble. And then he says, that sentence about change, I'll explain to you what that means. He says, you know, sails, the, the, the line was like this. You can't change the direction of the wind, but you can adjust the sails to reach the directions, which makes sense. You're traveling in a boat, you can't change the wind, but if you change the sails, it can make you reach where you need to go. He says the sails... Is, is what guides the, the boat. The brain is what guides a human being. He says, when you try to change your habit, what many people try to do is they try to change the habit. And that's not how you're going to succeed in changing a habit. You have got to change the sails. The sails is the, is the brain. It's the thoughts. It's the will that comes beforehand. That's what's going to change you. Changing the habit, deciding you're not going to be angry anymore is not going to make you not angry. I'm not going to be lazy anymore is not going to make you not lazy. You have to change your thought process. You have to change who you are. You are a person that no longer becomes angry because you are not yourself anymore. He says you have to change your thoughts. That's how you're going to change the habits. This guy was like, mic drop. This is, it blew his mind. He's like, every single person, wise person, never told me that. He's like, I can see why you're the wisest person. He's like, okay, I've got what to work on. And the guy told him, he says, you gotta work on humility and you gotta work on arrogance. He says, the way that you're gonna work on it, study it, learn about it, realize what it is in an intellectual level. Then you will be able to go and change it. He makes his way back to his, uh, to his kingdom and he goes to his mother. And it's bothering the whole way. It's like, my mom has something to tell me that I'm humble. She never told him that he was adopted. So um, he goes over to her and he says, 
uh, you know, this is what the old man said. He said that you have to tell me something that's going to change and it's going to make me humble. He says, what is this guy talking about? And the mother, when she heard that, started crying. And he's like, what's going on? You know, mom, is everything okay? And she's like, I can't, I don't even know how he knows. And he's like, you know, the king says, no, knows what? He's like, she's kept on repeating it. Says, it doesn't make any sense. No one ever told him, no one. And she kept on repeating it. How does he know? How does he know? And the king's like, what, what is he? How does he know what? The son was asking his mother, how does he know what? So the mother goes up to him with tears staring down her face. And she says, I'm going to tell you something that me and my father told each other. We'll never, we'll never share anybody else, including you. And he says, we only did not want to tell you this only because we loved you and we care about you so much. And she goes and she says, you know, when we were younger, it says we, we weren't able to have any children. And to the extent that we never actually had any children. And he's like, what do you mean? You had me. And she's like, no, you know, we didn't. You're actually adopted. He says, we couldn't have any children and we adopted you from when you were born and we raised you as our own. And then she goes on, she says, you know, I'm sorry that you had to find out this way, but it says, if this is what's going to help you fix you, then I have to tell you this. But I have to warn you. He says, this, nobody can ever find out about this, because if anybody ever finds out about this, your kingdom is, ruled, is ruined. You're not going to be able to rule anymore. People are going to revolt against you. You're not royal blood. It's over for you. He says, you cannot share this with anybody. And he was, he's like, what? I'm adopted? He's like, he's like his whole life, he's like, question. He's like, it doesn't make any sense. And he was, he put, it really shook him to, to the core. And he couldn't speak to his mother anymore, and he just walked out. And he started just walking and walking and walking. He walked well into the forest till he reached the lake. And he was sitting by the lake, and he's like, what do you mean I'm adopted? And he started thinking about his entire life. He says, you know, I scream at people. I wanted people beheaded. He says, those could have been my cousins. Those could have been my brothers that were working for me. He says, Did I? He says who am I? And when he started thinking about this, he started crying. For the first time in his life, he started crying, and he started screaming, who am I? Who am I? He says, I'm a nobody. He says, I am no, I'm not a king. He says, I'm not royal blood. I'm lucky. I just happen to be the person that they adopted. He says, I scream at people? He says, who am, and he started screaming, who am I, who am I, until he started crying. Nighttime came, he realized he's not making it back, he's staying by the, by the lake. And by his lake, he starts thinking, he says, you know what? I'm not going back at all. He says, who am I to go back? Am I a king? Am I a ruler? I'm a nobody. And he decides that he's going to sit on here, he's going to meditate, he's going to work on himself in the lake until, you know, further notice. And he sat there for weeks. His beard grew, his hair grew, you know, he was disgusting. He lived off the fruits and the water by the lake. A few weeks go by, and he completely changes his entire concept. He started thinking about arrogance. He started thinking about humility. He changed who he was in his essence. And then he decided it's time for him to go back into the real world. He started walking back to the real world. And, uh, you know, after... After like a few months of sitting and living in the, in the woods, he gets back into the real world over there, and the first person that he sees, he sees two people loading a donkey. The first thought was, the donkey needs help. And he goes over there, and he starts helping load the donkey. And then he's like, he's like, what am I doing? He's like, I've never helped anybody before in my life. You know, I've had everybody else do something for me. He didn't understand what was going on, but then he felt something weird inside of him. He says, now that I'm helping him, it actually feels kind of good. And he's like, you know, it was like a sort of a drug. And then he went, he's like, who else needs help? And he started going into town and he started started helping people. And no one even recognized that he was the king. He was so smelly and, you know, disheveled that no one even took it. And, you know, he was just some guy who just helped. And he felt so good about it. And that's what he started doing for the next few weeks. He, he was a man of the woods, people saw him. He went to live in the woods, came back in the day just to help people. And he would go and be like, who needs help? You know, and he'd go and help them. And that's what he went for a few weeks. A few weeks go by. 
And suddenly, the, prince, the queen starts parading through the town. She's going, traveling to a certain place, and she's going. Now, he was so enveloped in his helping you know, spree, that he was helping somebody else. He didn't even realize all the commotion that was going on over there. And he was helping this, this farmer load his apples to there. He's like, yeah, no problem. He's like, I'll do it for free. I know, I enjoy helping people. And he's going, and meanwhile, the queen is passing by. She happens to peek out, and she sees over there a very homeless-looking husband, you know, <laughs> helping the, with this apple, with this apple merchant. And she's like, is that... And she's like, no. And she's like, what? He looks so... And she's like, you know, stop the carriage. She gets off and she starts walking. Now everyone's carotting now, like, what's going on here? This guy, completely oblivious. He's helping pick up the apples. He's like shining them. He's like, you know, putting them nicely. He's like, this is, you're going to make a great sale today. Um, and uh, suddenly the queen, she's like, she calls her husband's name. He's like, is that you? And he turns around, right? His beard, like, you know, hair flies back. <laughs> the B.O. whiffs into her face. And... Um, and he's like, oh, he's like, hey, what's going on, honey? Um, she's like, what you doing? Um, she thought he went, you know, bunkers, you know, you know he's gone crazy. And she's like, uh, and he's, he looks around and he's like, come, I have to speak to you. And he brings her over into the, into the carriage. They close the curtain and he says, it's a good thing. You know, I decided, you know, I really wanted to come and, and speak to you. And he says, um, I'm really a changed man. And he says, I know, don't say anything. He says, I know I said this before. I know I've went through this bill before. He says, but I guarantee you, I promise, this is different. And he says, let me explain. And he says, I'm going to share with you something that you can ruin me without calling your father. And he says, I'm going to share with you this, this piece of information just to prove to you that I don't care about the kingdom. He says, all I care about is you and all I care about is the children. He says, I couldn't care less anymore about the kingdom. I've been living in the woods for a few months now and I'll continue living if I have to. He says, but the one thing that kept on hurting me inside was that I was far away from you. And he goes and he says... What I'm about to tell you, if you share with anybody, I'm done. And she, he goes over to her and he says, I'm adopted. He says, I don't have any royal blood. You share with, uh, that with anybody, I'm not king anymore. He says, you could share that with anybody, but I'm giving you that information to give me one final chance. I promise you, I'm a changed man. He says, I am no longer. And he started telling her the whole thing. He went to his mother, he went to the old man, he went back to his mother, he told her the whole scenario, and she really believed him. She really believed him, and guess what? He really changed. For the first time in his life, he really changed. You want to know why? Because he couldn't change the wind. You can't change habits. Habits are who they are. He changed the sails. He changed the brains of what, what drives the boat. He changed who he was. He wasn't that person anymore. The reason why we need to change is something very important. We don't change because we want to change. We change because we need to change. This guy needed to change. He needed to be together with his wife. He needed to be together with his children. He couldn't have it anymore. It was a need. It wasn't anymore a want. For the first time in his life, he had a need and not a want. This is the same idea. I'm not so familiar with, with boxing, but I will share with you this, uh, this idea that I read in an article. Um, it was a fight that took place in the Tokyo Dome on February 11th, 1990. It was a very big fight. It was a fight that was broadcast throughout the entire world. It was huge. It was a fight that was between an underdog, somebody who you know, was not with the undisputed heavyweight championship of the time, a guy by the name of Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson was the undisputed heavyweight champion at the time, and he fought a guy by the name of Buster Douglas. Now, Buster Douglas at that time, he fought them, and people bet against Buster Douglas, there was no chance of him winning. You're talking about Mike Tyson was the undisputed heavyweight champion. He's like, this guy has no chance. And people bet on, my, uh, on, on Mike Tyson. But there was something very interesting. There was one of the craziest turns in, in sports history. Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson. It was a crazy fight, but he knocked out Mike Tyson. 
Now, why and how did Buster Douglas all of a sudden knock out Mike Tyson? So there's something very interesting of who this Buster Douglas was beforehand. Right before this fight, he just got out of rehab, of alcohol recovery. And not only that, his mother just died. And not only that, his wife was terminally ill. And when he went into the fight, he's like, I am dedicating this fight to my mama. He says, I'm, because for my mama, I will fight and I will win. He had a reason to win. And guess what? He won. A short while later, or sometime later, he had another fight. And in this fight, regardless of whether he won or lost, he had a guaranteed $24 million in his pocket. Well, guess what? When he got knocked down, he didn't get back up again. He's like, why should I get back up again? I got the money. Why did I get hurt? He says, might as well stay down. You know why he didn't get back up again? Because he didn't need to. When he was Buster Douglas, when he was fighting Mike Tyson, he was a nobody. He was a bum. He had to win. He dedicated this to his mother. My mama is gone. I'm going to win. And when he needed to win, he won. But when he didn't need to win, he didn't win. And that's what we all are. If we want to win in life, we need to need it. If we don't want to win in life, then guess what? You already lost. This king, he had many, many reasons to change. And he rationalized whatever reasons that he had. But nothing was good enough until he needed it. And this is what it says in Echa, chapter 3, verse 40. It says, We're going to search our crevices. Searching means you're going to go find. You're going to go into the depths of your heart. You're going to find the issues. And then you're going to return to God. Because first we need to search. Because everything is hidden. Why is it hidden? Because we hide it. How do we hide it? Because we rationalize everything that we do. This is why the Zohar brings down that in the second book of Kings, the Elisha is sometimes known as Ish Elohim, a man of God, and sometimes he's known as Elisha. Now the question, why is it sometimes he's known as a man of God? Oh my God, I'm sorry, it's really late. I apologize. I did not realize how late it was. A few minutes, we're done. Um, I'm impressed that no one left. You guys know you're able to leave if you want. But Elisha sometimes goes... Um, Elisha sometimes... All right, I didn't realize. Right, I was in the story also. So... Elisha sometimes is going, it's not late at all, it's like, whatever, 8.45. So, um, in central time. So, uh, Elisha goes, and sometimes he's known as a man of God, sometimes he's known as Elisha. Now why, says Azar, because when he, when did he, was he known as man of God? When he was on Hal Kamel, when he was secluded, when he was by himself, he was on Mount Kamel. But when he was with everybody else, with his students, he was known as just Elisha. Now why? Because when he was secluded, he was able to internalize and, and look at what he was. He was able to go and do an introspection and realize who he was. Ah, now you're doing a true introspection. Now you're known as Isha Lokim. You're a man of God. That's how it takes. It doesn't take like, well, let me walk home today and you know, change my life. No, you have to really delve into your depths of your heart. You have to go inside and be like, what do I need to change to win in life? What do I need to change to become successful? Spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, financially, whatever it is that you want, you got to go delve inside there and realize what it is that I need to do. Stop rationalizing. Be true to who you are. You know, when we rationalize, you ever done this? I, my brain thinks in a, in a very weird way. I'm thinking about something, and then I stop, and then I think that I'm thinking about something. And then I'm like, whoa, I'm thinking about thinking about something. Have you ever done that? Is anybody weird like me? Okay, good. So what you need to do, what you're doing, what you're doing when you're doing that, is you're taking yourself out of the equation. And you're looking at yourself from a third party, but like, oh, that's what you're thinking about, right? We shouldn't say this out loud, right? It should all go inside. But I'm saying, you know, that's what you're thinking about. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Like, what are you talking about? I'm talking. You know, it's not like that, that, you know, that's, you know, one step to medication. But before that, if it's in your mind, it's not so bad. But when you're thinking, and when you're thinking of the outside, that's why you need, you need to take yourself out of the equation. Take yourself out of the equation, then you can think honestly. Then you can think truthfully. Then you can take, get rid of that, the rationalization. You know why do we rationalize? There is an emotion that drives rationalization. And that emotion is guilt. We don't like feeling guilty. 
The Vilna Goen says one of the main purposes of, of, of in this world is to fix your, fix your character traits. Your character traits are what you need to fix. And there's something very interesting with character traits with habits. Habits are conditioned behavior. We do it without thinking. Listen to what I said. Condition, habits, you do it without thinking. The way that you need to go through it is you have to go and you have to think. That's what Abedin Yona says. One of the things that you need to do for doing tshuva, for repentance, you have to regret the sin. How are you going to regret the sin if you don't think you're doing anything wrong? Says Rav Shemshem Pinkas, if you want to go and do tshuva, you have to make a big deal of the sin. How are you going to make a big deal of the sin if you don't think you're doing anything wrong? It's going to prevent you from doing any repentance. It's going to prevent you from doing it. Says Rabbi Yisrael Salantar, he says, you want to fix yourself? Learn about the sin. You have a problem, you have anger, you have an issue that you need to work on, your laziness, learn about it. Study it. When you study it, then you'll be able to fix it. You know why? Because you're fixing it at an intellectual level. You're changing the sails. You're not changing the wind. Because you can't change the wind, you could change the sails. You could change the way that you think about it. And that is why the Chavot al-Vavot in the, in, in the Hilchot Shuvah goes and says, you know what are the things that prevents repentance? There's three things. Of the first two, one is ignorance of God. Number two is ignorance of the Torah. Because if you don't know, you're never going to be able to go. And that's why it says, and I know I'm going a little bit fast because it's a little bit late, so bear with me because I want to finish up with the next uh, three, four minutes. It says the Gemara in Kiddushin, page 30b, it says, Barati Yetzahara, Barati Torah Tavlin. I have created the evil inclination, but I created the Torah as its antidote. It says you want to know how to get rid of all your bad inclinations, all of your bad habits, all of your bad character traits. There is one way, and that is through the Torah. That is the way that you're going to do it. There is a story that's brought down in the Kiddushin, page 81. They had two rabbis, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva, that the Satan went and it was going to tempt them with a woman to do a sin. Why? Because they went and they said, they used to, they used to laugh at, at the, the sinners and how could they go and they sin? So the Satan made with them such a test that they almost failed the test. They almost failed the test and then Satan goes and says, ah, had it not been announced in heaven, be careful, Arabi Kiva, be careful, Admir, and his Torah, I wouldn't have, I would have made you sin. Which means is the fact that they had the Torah saved them. And the Masha asks a question, says, I don't understand. He says, we know the Gemara says in Sukkah that if somebody is greater than you, they have a greater temptation. The greater the person, the greater the temptation. So just the opposite. Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva, they were tempted by this woman. They should have been tempted and they should have gone all the way. They should, the Satan shouldn't have stopped them. Says the Marsha, you know what this teaches us? This doesn't teach us the greater the person, the greater the, the, the evil inclination. What this teaches us is the greater the person's Torah knowledge, that Torah protects a person from sinning. Says, you know what protected says the Marsha, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva from sinning against the Satan? He, they protected them was the fact that they had the Torah. They had the Torah protected them. It gave them a shield of protection. Let's wrap it up with the final idea. We started off with a very good question. Our question was, the Torah begins and says, God, told the, God says, written in the Torah, let us create man. And we asked the question, why? And then we answered, Rashi answers and says over there, you know why? Because it will teach you good character traits. Be humble. God was humble, you have to be humble. And then we asked the question, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to risk the fact of having to think that there's no Shema Yisrael, Hashem Hashem Echad, there's no one God, there's more than one God. Is that really worth it to risk for good character traits? And the answer is yes. And why? Let's look at how this all wraps together with the secrets of what we're dealing in this Pasuk. We realize that what is the reason that a person sins, says in Midrash, God says a person is going to sin because a person wants to sin. You want to sin, that's what you're going to sin. That's what the Pasuk is telling us. Write it that it says that, there's, that, that we, want, we are making God, like it's plural. Why? Because if somebody wants to sin, they'll find a reason to sin. It's not going to, this is not going to change them. But, even though I did that, even though we wrote that in the Torah, still the, the answer is right over here. 
says God, what do we, what's the reason that, that we learn from this? We learn the character traits of humility. Because what do we say? What is the essence of someone sinning? That's rationalization. They're going to rationalize, either before the sin or after the sin. It's not the matter of the test. It's not the matter that's going to say, oh wait, look, it's a proof that there's more than one God. That's irrelevant. If you want to think that there's more than one God, you'll think about it. Because you're biased and you think about whatever you're biased. You're biased to yourself, you're biased to others, you're biased to everybody. But what is the source of everything? The source of everything is rationalization. You sin because that's your will. Where is your will? Your will stems from your mitot, your character trait. And that's why we said the strongest person that, that, that rationalized is that arrogant person. The person who has the arrogance rationalizes the strongest. That's why even in hell, he's not going to change because he rationalized so much. This is what we said. So the pasuk says, yeah, the pasuk is telling us that, but the pasuk is telling us so much more. It's teaching you how to get rid of rationalization. You have to take it out of it. And one of the main things that you need to do is work on your humility. You have to go. And then let this, you know, we should really take this to heart. Don't sell yourself short. We sell ourselves short all the time. We think we can never be religious. We think we can never do this. We can never be great. We can never accomplish a lot. Stop selling yourself short. You could accomplish amazing things. You could change the world. And if you don't think you can change the world, you're selling yourself short. Stop rationalizing yourself for, and stop rationalizing for, for everybody else. The lesson that we learn over here, if you want to do sincere tshuva, we're coming before Rosh Hashanah, we're coming before Yom Kippur, you want to change yourself? There's only one way to realize that you have to change. Stop rationalizing. Be true to yourself. And when we're true to ourselves, we'll really guide ourselves to the right place. And may God grant us in such an amazing year. I know we say this every time, but it's coming in a few days. May God all inscribe us and everybody for an amazing, successful year of Panasah, Bracha, Atzlacha. Whoever needs us, she do it. Whoever needs Shalabad, whoever needs kids, we should have all, the entire Jewish nation and the world at large. We should have an amazing year. We have Mashiach very, very closely. Any questions? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. If you want, work on humility. Learn about it. Buy a, a any buy a book and learn about humility. It will teach you to be true to yourself. My personal. Humility. Hum- anger is humility. You want to work on ladies? If you ask me my personal opinion, what I think, I think humility. I may be, whatever, I think it's very, very important. I think that's the first thing that you should work on. And that, and that will be, yes, read books, and that will be able to train you in how to act on it. Okay. Any, any questions? Yeah. Off camera. Any questions on camera? No questions? Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.